If you're able, would you please stand for reading of God's word? This is Matthew 26, beginning with verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we began this afternoon, Robbie asked a very important question, a question that has often been asked since Jesus died. Whose fault is it? Who killed Jesus? Who's to blame? Who's to be held responsible? People have debated the answer to that question over the years. I think in part because no one wants to be held responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And I think the other reason is because as we work our way through the story of Holy Week, there are so many people to point the finger at. We see so many of these people here in our passage today. Judas. Caiaphas, the elders, the other high priests, the Romans, as we will see Pontius Pilate, the Jewish people, you, me. Who's to be held responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? You see, the death of Jesus was a conspiracy. The worst of human sin coming together all leading up to this point, to the point of an innocent man putting, being put to death by crucifixion on a cross. We have the betrayal of one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas. We have the brutality of the Roman Empire and crucifixion. We have the indifference of Pontius Pilate washing his hands of the situation. We have the Jewish people crying out, crucify him. And we have, as we see and we press into Holy Week, the truth is it's your sin and my sin that put him there. But you see, as, uh, as much as the death of Jesus was a conspiracy, it also was a convergence. The convergence of human depravity and the sovereignty of God 
for the salvation of the world. And so in our passage today, we see Jesus saying three things, making three statements that all give us a glimpse of just who was ultimately responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And today, I want you to see why the answer to that question is such good news for us. The first thing we see Jesus say is this. He says to Judas and the people who came for his arrest, do what you came to do. Look with me at Matthew 26, verse 47. We're told that while Jesus was still speaking, and here he's in, been in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he's been praying with his disciples. He's been in agony over the weight of sin and what is to come. As he is still speaking, that is, as he is still praying in the garden, we're told that Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. I want you to imagine the scene. Here is Jesus. Here's his disciples, at least all of them except for Judas. And their eyelids are heavy. They cannot keep watch with him. And yet Jesus is staying up, keeping watch over the night. And he's praying. And finally, Judas shows up, but he doesn't show up to pray with the rest of them. But he's come, we're told, by Matthew with a great crowd. The Gospel of John tells us that it's actually a band of soldiers. Can you envision this? Jesus in the midst of prayer and agony over what is to come, and Judas comes, not to pray, but with an army. And they're armed. They have swords and they have clubs and they are coming for him. And we're told by Matthew that they came because they were sent by the chief priests and the elders. Now, who are they? Well, if you've grown up around church, you've probably had this image of these kind of stuffy religious types. And I think that's pretty accurate. But it put it in today's terms. These were the senior pastors and the members of the session. The elders and the pastors had sent an army to arrest Jesus. We're told that they had been conspiring for some time. Earlier in Matthew chapter 26, verse 3, this is what we see. We're told that then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You can hear just how dark, how sinister, how manipulative they were. They had been conspiring behind the scenes to put Jesus to death because he was a threat to their religiosity, a threat to their power and control. But they weren't the only ones who were part of the plot. They had conspired with one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And it's easy, like so many details of the story of Holy Week, that if you've grown up around the church, it's easy just to kind of take that in and move on. But really think about that. One of Jesus' own disciples, one of the 12, conspired with the religious elite to, to have him arrested. We're told that in verse 48, look with me, that the betrayer, that's Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man and sees him. 
And then he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. That word greetings in the Greek is still used today in Greece. It literally means rejoice. It's about as happy as a greeting as you could possibly give someone. It's like walking up to someone and saying, hey, what's up? <laughs> how are you? You see just how two-faced, how false, how fake Judas is. But it doesn't just stop with him saying greetings. Then he says, Rabbi, what's interesting about the Gospel of Matthew is that the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew never called Jesus Rabbi, ever. Yet Judas did. And then his betrayal is put on full display. It would have been much more honest for, for Judas just to point a finger at him or to say, hey, he's over here. But instead, he goes and kisses him, a sign of friendship and intimacy when it's the ultimate betrayal. And yet notice what Jesus says to all of this. Verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus doesn't put a stop to it. No, he says, do what you came to do. You see, because Jesus was willing to be betrayed. He was willing to be arrested. He was willing to suffer, to be beaten. He was willing to be tried. He was willing to go to the cross. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Because Jesus was willing. The second thing we see Jesus say is he says, put your sword back into its place. As the scene unfolds, we see in verse 51, we're told that behold, one, was, one of those who are with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The Gospel of John tells us that the one who did this was Simon Peter. And this is so on brand for Simon Peter. All zeal and no wisdom. I love that also that Peter's armed. <laughs> he had a sword on him. Peter pulls out a sword. I also love this collision of the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss and the one who is about to deny him three times drawing arms. Here's Peter. He cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus actually heals the servant's ear. And Matthew then tells us what Jesus says. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. These words echo Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 38, when Jesus said, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God will not be established by human power and military strength. The kingdom of God will not be established through our own cunning and strength and power and might, but the kingdom of God will be established through death and suffering on a cross. And so Jesus says, put your sword away. Friends, I think we need to hear those words today because we're just like Peter. 
We're so tempted with all that we face in our world and all that's happening in our culture to think that it's up to us somehow to defend Jesus. <laughs> He's the king. He doesn't need defending. He is in control and he's in charge of everything. And so Jesus is saying, put your sword away. We're so tempted to think it's up to us, our own strength and might to build the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is built through humility, suffering and death on a cross. Jesus is saying, put your sword away and take up the cross. Because Paul would later teach our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers that we cannot fight on our own, that can only be conquered through the cross of Christ. The third thing we hear Jesus say, we hear him say that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Look with me at verse 53. Jesus then says to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he would at once send more than 12 legions of angels? <laughs> What's he saying? He's saying, really, Peter? You really think I need your sword? God could right now send a heavenly army to save me from this, but I've already told you that I'm supposed to go to the cross. <laughs> and you're not listening. He says this in verse 54, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be also. He, he goes on and says it again in verse 55. He says, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, if you come out against me as a robber, that word robber literally means an insurrectionist. In today's words, you can think of it like a terrorist. Jesus saying, really, you think you need to come after me with an army as if I was some kind of armed terrorist? As if I was gonna put up a fight? And then he points out that he's, he was teaching every day in the temple. And it, nothing had ever happened to him except now. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, so why do you think this is happening now? Why? Do you really think it's because of your conspiracy? And then notice what he says in verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. I wonder how they heard those words as they saw all of this happening before their eyes. So much that they didn't understand. Their whole world, their last three years come crashing down. All of their hopes and all of their dreams that they thought Jesus was going to come to do and here is their leader being arrested and taken away. And yet Jesus says, all of this is happening so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. As they were fleeing, I wonder how those words singed their heart, echoed in their minds. Because Peter, just a few years later, would put it this way in the book of Acts. As Peter was proclaiming all that he saw and heard, at Pentecost, this is what Peter said. This Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. A couple chapters later in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John once again prayed this way. 
For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What I want you to see is that as much as Jesus was willing to go to the cross, it was his sovereign will to go to the cross. The Gospel of John, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So the question for us today is, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? It was the betrayal of Judas. It was the conspiracy and the plot of Caiaphas and the high priest and the other elders. It was the brutality of crucifixion that had been set up by the Roman Empire. It was Pontius Pilate. It was the Jewish people who yelled, crucify him. And it was your sin and it was my sin. But all of this happened for our sin because Jesus the King had the authority to lay his life down for you and me. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? God is responsible for the death of Jesus. Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter eight. For we know that all those things, for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's one of those verses we love to quote but when we understand that by all things, the Apostle Paul really means all things, that God works all things together for good, even a conspiracy and a plot to put his son to death. He works all things together for good for those who love him. In response to this, Paul goes on to ask this question. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how he not also graciously give us all things. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? It was our sin, our sin that put him there. But it was for our sin that he laid his life down for you and for me. Join me now in silence as we consider Paul's question for us, that if he who is gave us his son how would he not also willingly give us all things? Let's pray in silence.